Hi, I'm Frank Tissia Burns, and this is 360 North. Talirutup Imanga is known as the ecological engine of the Eastern Arctic. 75% of the world's narwhals come here during the summer, and 20% of Canada's belugas migrate through too. And beyond that, there are millions of seabirds and other sea creatures that come there to feed. Of course, with that, local Inuit communities depend heavily on the area. The federal government, the Kikitani Inuit Association, and the government of Nunavut all came together to decide to protect it by calling it a national marine conservation area. As part of that agreement, there's consultation with local communities to create an Inuit impact and benefit agreement. And that's where my guest today comes in. Sandra Inutik is the chief negotiator for the QIA, and she visits the five communities around the region to see what local Inuit want and need out of the agreement. Well, first off, thank you for coming on the show and taking the time. I really appreciate it today. You're welcome. Just to get started, I'm wondering if you can help us get a sense of how big this area is. So the area is 110,000 square kilometers. It's um, twice the size of Nova Scotia or the size of Portugal. So it's a pretty large area. It's also known as Lancaster Sound Mm -hmm. um, or has been known as Lancaster Sound. The, The communities that are adjacent are... Greasebeard, Resolute, Arctic Bay, uh, Pondament, and in its north of Clyde River. Now, obviously, there was this announcement last year that the delimitations that were put forward from the government and QIA and the government of Nuvut, um, and this has been a long time coming. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the history, uh, how Inuit have been calling for this area to be protected since the 70s or so. Yeah, so in the late uh 1960s permits started to be given for oil and gas exploration inuit were very concerned about what was happening really without any kind of consultation or input from them okay. it was a real trigger for much of the the self determination movements events like this and the the movement to protect this area really started um, as a result of those permits, and then Inuit asking for for the area to be protected since it's um, such a critical region for the wildlife that we depend on for for food and our way of life. Can you expand a little bit on that and how I guess why this area is so important to those practices? Yeah, it's really difficult to talk about the area without talking about Inuit worldview. Um, A lot of the legends and stories revolve around oceans and a deity, like she's often known as Sedna in more of the English Mm -hmm. world, but she has several names. Um, So she's a very predominant character in our world because we we rely so much on on sea mammals that the her generosity is what gives us our nourishment and her generosity is then extended to Inuit sharing that food onto fellow Inuit um, so the sharing economy the the perspective that our 
relationship with our natural environment is based on reciprocity. So it's our Inuit worldview is very much protection first, whereas in the Western notion of conservation, uh, the basis comes from exploitation first, Mm -hmm. and then by stopping activities or not permitting certain activities like oil and gas exploration, then it's a conservation area by definition, by stopping those activities. Going forward now, there's the Inuit Impact and Benefit Agreement where your role as chief negotiator comes in. Is that kind of what you're looking at to um, not merge, but negotiate between those two different worldviews? Can you talk a a little bit about that? Yeah, so the question then becomes how do we come together to determine what are the shared values, what are the shared perspectives that we we can work on this together. Yes, we we want to come from an Inuit perspective as QIA, but really the the views when it comes to protection and the measures that we want to take aren't that far apart. Fair enough. Um, in in January, you went around the five adjacent communities to get some feedback from them. Is that right? Mm-hmm. What have you heard so far coming from those communities? There are uh, certain things that are unique to to the communities, but there are also issues that are universal. The infrastructure needs are definitely universal. We live in a region that is way behind than the rest of the country in terms of infrastructure and um, infrastructure that allow for economic development, such as small craft harbors. When we lack infrastructure, then it it really inhibits the kinds of economic opportunities that, that can take place. Then there are more community-focused, such as the community of Greece Fjord that's facing impacts now on climate change, uh, erosion, and just uh, worries about their infrastructure because they have had to reroute roads, for example, and the beach is eroding. And there have been landslides around the area, and there's concerns about more serious landslides, uh, like the one that took place in Greenland, where um, a huge piece of a mountain fell into the ocean, causing causing tsunamis. And then there's um, communities that have had impact benefit agreements and stating that, that they haven't seen real benefits and having a bit of skepticism in terms of, yes, we've gone through this and what real benefits are we going to receive this time? Can we see tangible impacts, uh, tangible benefits with, with this one? I'm wondering at that point, what recourse do these communities have to, I guess, enforce the impact benefit agreements? What can be done at that point if they've been signed and they're not necessarily seeing the benefits that were agreed upon? I think all we can do is take lessons from other Inuit impact benefit agreements mm-hmm. that have been done. How can we create an agreement where when things don't come through that there are mechanisms for, for intervention to kick in in some way? Okay. So 
there, there's an awareness that this one may impact other Inuit impact benefit agreements and um, and setting the bar a little bit higher for, for them. Now, after that first round of uh, consultation that you've had, what are the next steps for you as negotiators? Is there more consultation to go forward? Yeah, the timeline is very compressed and it's very ambitious. The idea is that we do the Inuit Impact Benefit Agreement Management Plan and Implementation Plan um, in tandem, and the agreements would be signed at the same time. So the community consultations were to basically find out what the communities wanted for impacts and benefits. And and then the next uh, part will be, what about management plan? How do you see that uh, rolling out? Actually, in line with that, you were quoted as saying, what we're envisioning is for Inuit to fully manage and control the conservation area. And then later on in that story, that CBC story, there was a statement by Parks Canada that said it's more likely to be a, a collaborative relationship. Is there a bit of a meeting that has to be done, I guess, at that point? Uh, how much control are you looking for? Well, it's a negotiation process, right? We see models that are ideal, I think, that have already been agreed upon, like the Haida Gwaii Hanas agreement, um, where they have a certain management regime and there's no reason why Inuit couldn't do the same. Going back to the benefit agreement, can you go into a little bit more detail what these communities were looking for? Because I think that agreement also looks at things like uh, jobs and education and from an economic development point of view, kind of access to fisheries and things like that. Is that right? Yes. One of the um, discussions between the minister and president has been to do a pilot project for a guardians program in the communities. So these guardians would monitor the region from uh, their community. So that pilot project is in hopes that the guardian program would develop into basically a management program to monitor the conservation area. So that would create jobs and it would also recognize hunting and land skills as a basis for employment rather than having master's degree in environmental studies, for example, where these kind of systemic barriers exist for employment. Um, Inuit are already out there and they're uh, we've been uh, part of this landscape for millennia and will continue to be so. Why not invest in those skills to manage the conservation area? You can tack on or add on training such as a wilderness first aid or uh, maybe some marine training, and but the basis would be the, the land skills. Mm. One role so far for the communities has been to name the conservation area. I'm wondering if you can don your your former languages commissioner hat for a second and uh, talk about the importance of these communities naming this area. Yeah, Tendogutu is Devon Island. Tendogutu Imanga means the water 
adjacent to to Devon Island. The landscape names are very representative of our worldview. They're either descriptive of the landscape, events that took place, or describe um, wildlife in the area. So the Lodi means the chin tattoos uh, because the streaks of snow look like the the chin tattoos. Um, so you can already imagine what the landscape looks like mm-hmm. without having even been there. So that pe- when we traverse these lands, the, these names are very much um, indicative of where you are. And then the names represent that Inuit have been living here, have been part of this landscape and against uh, names like Lancaster Sound, which uh, was an explorer who um, named the area, uh, having discovered it for their royalty back in England um, with the idea that nobody, no uh, civilized society lived there. So the lands were were for the taking mm-hmm. or, and the waters were for the taking. And um, so this legacy of naming lands after people that supposedly uh, discovered them or were sponsored in some way to discover them is, is very much a c- colonial construct. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember that these lands and waters already had names and there were already people living here. And we are still here. And very invested in in basically taking back our lives and our worldview. When when it comes to, I'm not sure what the word is, but the the practical sense of bringing in the protection through a national marine conservation area, as you had mentioned earlier, that means no oil or gas exploration or dumping. But shipping and fishing is still around in that is still allowed in that area. Is that right? Part of the process will be to determine what will be allowable and what will not be allowable and in what areas. And um, so those kind of discussions are still to take place. Okay. And you had mentioned this a little bit as well. Uh, When it comes to infrastructure like the ports and things like that, I think sometimes people may have the idea that one doesn't necessarily coalesce with the other. So what what do you tell those people who think protection is at the detriment of economic development? We, we can even go back to how parks and conservation areas have been created in the Western world where there's an expectation that there are to be almost absolutely no human activity in the area mm-hmm. to the point where First Nations groups have been moved out of, of their homes uh, to create parks and conservation areas. If you look at the world, the natural environments that are still intact are predominantly indigenous lands. Mm. Um, they live there and through their worldview, maintain that ecosystemic integrity and that relationship of reciprocity um, with 
their natural environment. Yes, we're now um, a modern society up against interest uh, in commerce and exploitation. So we kind of have that friction now. I think if we really start defining the relationship from an Inuit perspective where we are part of this landscape, we are um, the ones out there sustainably hunting and harvesting, then that balance can be attained. And I think we have to stop thinking uh, about conservation as excluding humans from the region. So Small Craft Harbor will not only allow for small-scale fisheries, but it will also help with the hunting economy where Inuit still rely heavily on. The issue touches on so many things. Mm -hmm. We rely heavily on imported foods and our Nutrition North program is based on importing foods when really we should be investing on the foods that exist up here. Um, The food security issue, yes, of course, it it won't be solved, but there is food up here. We're a hunting society. There is plenty of wildlife, um, even though animal rights activists uh, would like to have the world think that seals are going extinct. We, We still eat rely on sea mammals, fish, and um, and caribou to and, and these activities are are not just about food, but it, the nourishment in terms of the communal aspect, where a child's first catch is celebrated, and the impromptu kind of piece that happen in the community where if somebody brings back a seal and then every and um, there's an announcement that anybody that wants to come and eat is welcome to come and eat these are very much uh, cohesive creation activities Um, hunting is such an integral part of Inuit culture Um, it's not just food security it's about maintaining Inuit as Inuit. Yeah, it may just look like small craft harbor on paper, but really it's significant to a lot more exactly to what you just alluded to. It's kind of giving back to these communities and adding to that Mm self-determination. In line with that a little bit, you mentioned the significance of the benefit agreement. Looking and based on what you just said, how important is keeping that Inuit traditional knowledge going forward with this benefit agreement, but also some that are to come later on? So right from the beginning, PYA was committed to having Inuit knowledge inform the process. So during the feasibility study, the communities were visited to ask them basically where the border, uh, the boundary should be. And why. So those discussions took place and the feasibility study informed the boundary, which was agreed to last August. In 2010, the the federal government actually tried to unilaterally create a a boundary which was way smaller than um, what was agreed to. I think it was less than half than what was agreed on. Yes. 
so QIA went to the communities and and asked them where are the areas where there's uh, wildlife that are significant for protection, and um, because the 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 federal government boundary had very little, if any, input from Inuit, so that feasibility study then informed the critical habitat areas and the boundary, which Inuit knowledge basically defined. Mm. And uh, so even through this process of negotiation, there is continued commitment to to ensure that Inuit knowledge is the informing mechanism to negotiate. Just to finish off, I have one more quote uh, from you. Um, your quote is saying, often people are unaware of Arctic issues and that there are actually people that live up there and that we are very much involved in what's happening with our lands and waters. What's your message to those people who really don't think of the Arctic and how important it is to Inuit communities and northern communities overall? Yeah. So when... We see images of the Arctic. It's norm- normally the ice, the snow, and the wildlife. And what's often missing is people. Mm-hmm. And, and this isn't accidental. We, we deal with the issue of erasure of indigenous people from as a product of colonialism, um, as if we are not uh, part of this landscape. Uh, we have leaders um, like Sheila Wakluchier that talk about putting a face to the Arctic, um, where her work has very much revolved around telling a human story about the, the Arctic. Inuit have been able to negotiate a relationship with Canada, and that's defined in the the land claim agreement. And... Um, including that is to have a say in what happens to the lands and waters here where uh, you need an impact benefit agreement to create a conservation area or a park and you you have to agree to it. So we're very much um, a party to to what happens up here uh, in our homelands Mm -hmm. and um, and there are people that live up here, and we have uh, a valid worldview that we can base these decisions on. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this episode of 360 North. As always, I'd love to get your feedback and you can do that by sending me an email and leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. All of that will also help us get new listeners to the show. While you're there, you can also subscribe in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Links to all of that are going to be in the show notes. Right now, the show is supported 100% by listeners like you. And if you feel like you can chip in, you can go to patreon.com slash T-H-R-E-E-6-0-N. Every little bit helps, even a dollar a month. Music for 360 North was written by Simon Léger, and the sound is courtesy of JP and Pop-Up Podcasting. With that, see you in a couple weeks. Thanks. Thanks.